Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is our 26th episode. Yes, we've just passed the quarter century mark, and it's actually hard to believe that I haven't interviewed an investor yet, but that is changing today. My guest is TJ Mahoney, who is a partner at Accomplice, one of Boston's most active venture capital firms. Before joining Accomplice as an investor, TJ was CEO and co-founder of Flipkey, which was acquired by TripAdvisor, and prior to Flipkey, he was part of the core team of amazing people that helped build Compete to a successful business that was ultimately acquired. TJ is what I consider a product-minded investor, as he's able to add value to entrepreneurs in so many ways based on his own experiences. Plus, TJ is the type of guy who's always willing to help people out by giving advice or making connections and intros. I know that each time I've met with him, you leave the meeting full of energy and lots of new ideas swirling in your head, which is exactly why I was excited to interview him. In this episode, we cover lots of topics, like the story of his basketball career at McAllister College and how he was just two points away from a major milestone. The story of Flipkey, where he shares an embarrassing story about a meeting at Stephen Coffer's house, who is the CEO and co-founder of TripAdvisor. It is a classic. How he got into angel investing and venture capital, why he's looking to invest in founders with quote-unquote a disease, advice for founders on building teams, and a lot more. Okay, before we get to the interview, if this is the first time you're listening to the VentureFizz podcast, I want to say welcome and thank you for joining us, but please make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud so you'll get all future episodes. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with TJ. TJ, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Good to see you. So shockingly, you're the first investor I've talked to for this podcast. So I'm excited about that. Thanks for taking the time. And I wanted to ask you an interesting question to kick things off. What does the number 998 mean to you? So uh, it sounds like you were on our uh, on our website and saw my profile. So uh, I went to McAllister College. I was a varsity basketball player for four years, starter for four years, one of my claims to fame. Um, and in that time, I had uh, scored some points. In my last game of my senior year, um, uh, I was told that if I scored 26 points, I would hit the 1,000 thousand point mark which was significant because there's a plaque in our uh in our athletic department that features everyone who's reached this milestone so during the game i uh i only scored two points in the first half so i stopped thinking about actually hitting the milestone but in the second half was probably the best second half of basketball i've ever played (laughs) i couldn't i could kick the ball and it was going to go into into the hoop and if you believe it with like two and a half minutes left we were down by 10 but I stole the ball, came down, and I dunked it. One of the rare times that I actually had a dunk. And I was pretty pumped up. And the other team called a timeout, and the coach pulled me over and, and removed me from the game. And I sat there wondering why. And I figured he thought that the game was out of hands, eight points. And so with two and a half minutes, he put in a freshman, and, and the game ended. A reporter came over afterwards and asked me why I was taken out. And I, I told him, I don't know, why is that your question? He said, well, you finished the, the game with 998 career points. Like, you just needed one, <laughs> one more, more basket. basket. To hit the 1,000. And so my last basket was a dunk. Nice. And nice. and the coach took me out, and that was it. So I, I missed this, like, 
milestone. This, this milestone, this like – And on a plaque, right? There's this whole this plaque in McAllister that yeah, has 1,000 points not, for it. So it's become an ongoing joke. It's brought up often. It's a better story that way. It is a better story. The coach later apologized. He said he didn't realize I was that close and he wanted the crowd because I – again, I started for four years. So he wanted the crowd to give me a standing ovation, which I don't think they even did. Right. Um, and it was just a miss. And they apologized pretty profusely after the game. But um, I'll never have that. They so, one of those, but I'll have a good story though. They should have one of those one-day contracts that you sign on as a scholarship yeah, athlete yeah. just to school in basket and then – I jokingly team. asked the the president of McAllister how much I would need to donate <laughs> for two points. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's take a step back. So you grew up in Colorado and Boulder, yes, in Boulder, great. And then, why did you choose McAllister? Uh, honestly, it was the best school I got into. Um, I, I was a decent student, but not a great one. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I was a pretty good basketball player. So at the D three level, I was I. It opened a lot of doors to some of the top liberal arts schools. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. The, the McAllister coach just kept calling me and calling me. And it, it was this really good school. I knew a few people from Boulder that had gone there that really sung its praises. And that was it. So I headed off to Minnesota. First year was super cold. I almost transferred, um, but decided to stick it out. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made. I'm extremely loyal and a huge McAllister Scouts fan. That's awesome. And then that brought you, after graduation, to Accenture? Yep. First job out of school. I I'd actually interned. I was on an iBanking track. Had done a lot of internships with uh, various banks. But got, like, it was clear the commercialization of the internet was, like, in your face. Um, began to really understand the applications and how it was going to change my personal, like, life flow. Mm-hmm. And Accenture had like these various training programs. And so I decided that I was going to go down the technology route, started taking computer science courses, taught myself how to code. I was very, I was not very good at coding. So Accenture charged companies to have me code their applications, which is like criminal, totally criminal. But that's their business model. Uh, But it was, it was really valuable in that, that year of coding. I at least understood the basics and fundamentals of logic and how applications stick together, which doesn't really change from one computing paradigm to the next. Like the general logic is always there. And so it always helped me communicate. It, it's, it's why I kind of think of myself as, as a product centric guy, because I've always been able to communicate between the business objectives and engineers because I, I know just enough not to offend them. Um, and on the business side, I know just enough of the constraints to be reasonable with how to approach any given problem. Um, so I did not enjoy my year at Accenture, but I very much appreciated um, the experience and, I guess, uh, mental good, mental framework it gave me. It was a good foundation yeah. coming out of school. Yeah. And then you joined an internet high-flying consultancy that brought you to Boston, right? Zephyr? Yeah, Zephyr. Matthew Berkeley uh, was, uh, uh, was a childhood friend of mine. He was the co-founder of Zephyr with Tony Chan, who now runs Q-Ball Capital. Um, and so Matthew said, yep, come on over. I came on over. It was awesome. Got my taste of a startup. Everyone's in T-shirts, jeans, thinking differently, moving fast, trying to break things. And a year later, I was out of a job. So I went to uh, – 
at that time, that was the dot bomb. You could not get a job. Right. Engineers couldn't get jobs. Right. So um, I considered moving back to Boulder. I was running out of money. Started working for a general contractor for $15 an hour, cash under the table, hammer and nails. Wow. Um, helping do renos in Beacon Hill. And kept doing that until um, – Stephen DeMarco, who was one of the other co-founders of Zephyr, mm-hmm. took over the CMO spot at Compete. Got it. Gave me a 90-day contract to come in and, um, and act as one of their client service consulting kind of reps. So I started doing analysis and strategic PowerPoints using the Compete clickstream data. And that 90-day contract turned into six years. Compete is where I met David Cancel. Um, it's where I met actually a number of entrepreneurs here in Boston. Uh, Jay Meadle. Greg Sachs, um, Dave, Stephen was a great mentor. Uh, Scott Ernst has gone on to run both L2 and MacroMail. Macro um, so there was a uh, – people People often don't give Compete enough credit, but there was a dense pool of talent at Compete. And we resurrected that thing three different times out of the ashes. And, uh, um, yeah, that's, uh, that is where I really cut my teeth. And you did a couple of things. Like you said, you helped with the client services team as far as building out part of that business. But then you also built out compete.com, like the actual analytics side where me as a website, I could go in and pay or get the free version of compete and compare my traffic to others. Correct. And th- this is where uh, I worked with David Cancel closely throughout the whole trajectory of, of, um, of compete. But compete.com was the closest partnership he and I had. Um, and it was his, he had determined that it was kind of crazy that we had this like terabytes and terabytes of clickstream data and we would only share the insights derived from it with fortune 500 companies for a million dollars. Yet everyone was on the internet, everyone like entrepreneurs, like big and small are building applications and like the data itself is useful at a broader public sense. And so sat down and said, let's release this data. How do we release this data? And so we came, we basically said, we're, we got to move the corporate site to some other domain. Compete.com is going to be a consumer public facing entity and it's going to open up these insights to the world. So we built compete.com. We also built a number of applications around it. We had toolbars, we had plugins. Uh, um, we built a consumer survey panel as well, but like things that touched the consumer. And that ultimately um, ended up accelerating the business that in many ways catalyzed the ultimate uh, uh, liquidity events that, that Compute was able to achieve. And so, yeah, it started in a room like this with a PowerPoint and Dave and I pushing people to be like, let's, let's go bigger. Let's, let's touch the world and stop just closing this down to Fortune 500 companies. And um, we were one of the first advertisers on TechCrunch. Oh, really? Yeah, Michael Arrington. <laughs> like we, um, if you go way back, you will note that for a while, Arrington stopped um, citing Comscore. He was only citing Compete. And I didn't pay him to do that. I think he just naturally did it because I was one of his only advertisers. Mm-hmm. And so we got this little rectangle static uh, banner, paid him, I believe, 5000 a month. He often didn't invoice. He would call. And I mean, this is early days. Yeah. And Arrington would call and be like, I, 
can't remember if I invoiced you or not. <laughs> Can you check your records? Right. And I would literally write a handwritten check and send it to him in the mail. And that was like, that's the time that all of this was happening. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and so, yeah, it, uh, it was invaluable to be able to look inside what was happening on the internet and all this clickstream data, which gave me the confidence that, um, I don't know, I felt like I understood certain mechanics, like the mechanics of consumer behavior online pretty well and just not needing a lot of um, smart people through our consultations. But like, again, we had had like an unfair advantage of being able to look inside every website on the internet um, through our clickstream panel. And, um, and so, yeah, that was, that was an empowering, um, six years. And it, it's a product that I miss, uh, cause eventually they did it, sunset the product. Cause Comscore, Comscore ended up, the business got kind of split up a bit. Comscore ended up buying that product and, okay. and then they sunsetted it because it competed, it competed it, against yeah. its, its paid product. Yeah. Got it. So then once the acquisition happened, is that when you ended up going off and starting your own company? No, mm-hmm. I actually... I started uh, Flipkey probably a year or two before Compete was sold. Um, okay. What had happened is so during this time where uh, we're launching Compete.com and all these other products, I started flying back and forth between New York, uh, Chicago, uh, uh, SF, and things were happening. Like Web 2.0, like Web 2.0 was basically being coined right around then. And the first Web 2.0 conference and summit happened like now i think i don't know five ten thousand people show up at that conference there was like 300 people there um and so thing but things were happening like it was and the people of those 300 people it was some some of the names that uh, that built linkedin that built paypal like it was real um anchors of what has become um has become the ecosystem, I guess. And so um, in that time, I just bought my first house. And uh, I was traveling so much, I came back and I got my first mortgage bill. And that mortgage bill, I um, was a little shocked by, I had kind of overlooked taxes and right. insurance, things like that. <laughs> right. And so I divided it by how many nights I'd actually slept in my bed. Mm-hmm. And I was paying close to $300 a night to sleep in my own house. Right. And I thought to myself, like, I should just live in a hotel or I should turn my house into a hotel. And that is when the concept of FlipKey was born. So what I started to do is which I... Which sounds like an Airbnb precursor. In, which was... which we What is now Airbnb, that concept was born two years before that in my condo in the North End. And so I... Um, I created a listing. I put it on VRBO and Craigslist, and I started uh, letting strangers come into my house while I was gone. I would come home. There would be a $1,000 check on my table, a wine bottle, and a thank you card. And I was like, they are so appreciative. Like, this is – there's something big happening, and I'm making a lot of money too. Right. And it was crazy. Like, I would take my keys. I would – because there's no lockbox. I would hide them inside my car. I would keep one door unlocked in my car, parked on the street. I would tell the guest which street I was on, my license plate, which door to open, and where I hid the key inside the car. And they still thanked me for a wonderful, like, as being a wonderful host. So, um, 
I was like, wow, if you were to able, if you could productize this and make this comfortable and trustworthy for folks, you could do this at scale. And so um, I got David's lead engineer, Carl Query, um, was the engineer I worked closest with at Compete. Sold him on the idea, and we resigned and broke off. Uh, we had a good arrangement with Compete. They uh, they were uh, supportive, mm-hmm. and we did part time work for about six months, I would say. And we were asked to come into the office two days a week, and then otherwise we could do everything, hmm. anything we wanted. And it was a good transition period for both for both parties. In that time, um, a lot of the logistics and the legal stuff and the operation, a lot of things that we had to pull together um, were weighing me down a little bit. So we brought on a third co-founder who was Jeremiah Gall, who uh, was a former attorney at Testa Hurwitz. He had been doing side pro- web side projects, and he came on as our COO. Um, he's also the godfather of my second born child. So ah. we're, we're, we're good friends. We were good friends before that. Um, but that's how the team kind of like formed. Right. Um, and then what happened was we, uh, we had this plan and it was around creating, it was the idea of, you know, helping people monetize their most valuable asset, which is their home and showing that most people have Anywhere from two weeks to six months in aggregate in a given year where their house sits unutilized, uh, their primary home. And so we went through that. We looked at it and we're like, this is a massive, massive opportunity. And there is evidence of people doing it. I'm doing it. Uh, couch surfing existed right then where people were sleeping on other people's couches. Um, unlike Airbnb, our, our focus was purely on staying having access to the whole unit privately, mm-hmm. not sharing, not having access to a shared bed or anything like that. Uh, not a shared bed, what shared bed shared room. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a different marketplace. So, um, so that's what we did. And we had a good team. We built a prototype um, and nobody would fund it. People said it was crazy. Uh, and were you looking here in Boston primarily for Looked investors? here in Boston. Uh, and this is actually, what year, just context-wise? This would be in 2000. Seven two thousand two thousand seven I want to say so very few two thousand six no two thousand six when we incorporated so, so that's when we started the process angel investors that would be notable of writing checks back then probably right like, well so we did have so, so uh, I will say that Matrix was one of the first firms that brought us in Nick okay. Bime was there he really liked it he really liked us. I didn't know what to do with $5 million. And so we couldn't tell a story that made the partnership feel comfortable because I really just wanted a million and a half just right. to like, to prove, to prove it out regionally. Right. And um, so ultimately it was a pass, but Nick came in personally. And when Nick came in personally, Sheila Marcello participated. We found some early Facebook guys that were in the travel space. So we, we were able to put a 500K round together um, it took five months, mm-hmm. uh, but it it materialized, and we were able to have enough capital to actually start hiring some folks. In terms of leveraging that capital to then get the check that we really needed, mm-hmm. uh, we met with everybody. Like we had two, three, four meetings with a bunch of Boston firms. Whether it was uh, Matrix, Spark had us in a bunch. Um, there was definitely like interest in the concept. Uh, we're Benrock, where David Beisel used to be, and, and a number of others. 
Um, then we went West Coast, and the, my, my favorite meeting was with Josh Koppelman at first, first round, yeah. who uh, – he was – it must have been – I was – I remember I was sick. I remember he seemed unhappy in the meeting, but um, which is too bad because, like, they would have been perfect. And Josh goes through it. He was an eBay guy. He gets second – he gets marketplaces like this, and he was like, uh, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work because – your business model is predicated on changing human behavior. Humans, we exchange, we transact things, we do not share things. And like primary home, like that, like I just don't see a world where that's going to happen. And I thought it was like existentially, like it was an interesting objection. Like, does this really change human behavior? But if you go back, you're like, but human behavior, like people would share if it economically benefits them substantially. And I think that that's, that's the point I was missing, was drawing and showing how this was going to fundamentally change people's wealth and their ability of where they live and the quality of life. Um, because for many individuals, it actually is able to remove their cost of living. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Which tends to be your highest cost. So I didn't construct a... A strong enough story that helped the world understand that this wasn't about someone making like a couple thousand dollars here and there. It was about literally changing lives to where economies would be built around it, which is all hindsight now, right? Like right. you see what's happened with Airbnb. Uh, but that's where we actually believed in all that stuff. I guess we just didn't tell the story strong enough. But in our defense, neither did Airbnb. I mean, Airbnb had a lot of trouble getting this going. At one point, there was a gentleman who bought 10% of that company for a hundred grand. They were out of money. They were about to be shut down. And this guy offered, gave them, you know, a kind of bottom feeding offer. hundred grand to keep you in business. I want 10% of the business. Wow. So imagine, like, uh, when I talk to some of my entrepreneurs, especially, like, it's never a straight line. Right. Entrepreneurship is like, if you think that, if you think that your company is going to follow the trajectory of uh, Mark Zuckerberg in the movie, right? You know, the, uh, what the hell is the movie called? Um, social Network. The Social Network. Yeah, yeah. Like that's just not how it goes, right? Yeah. It just doesn't trend that way. It's a very, very crooked path. Yeah. And so Airbnb almost died. So we almost died too. We couldn't get any funding. What happened was, um, again, we were on good terms with Compete. Compete had troves of proprietary data. You look at vacation rentals 10 years ago, they existed. This market existed. There's just no data around it. There hadn't been one research report ever published on it. So I published the first report. I took all the clickstream data and started showing the trends of VRBO. Um, I got A1 vacation, which people have not heard of. But Homeway came in and bought a bunch of – It was there was a bunch of listing sites out there. Mm-hmm. And um, VRBO was by far the largest. And then there was probably 20 others. Homeaway came in and bought the top five and like consolidated them all. So looking at all these, started looking at the traffic trends, who were doing what. We were also able to tag people who were logging in and surveying them. So we could actually get qualitative input from people who were active vacation rental owners who were renting it out online to get a sense of what they were doing. We also scraped the internet, found every property manager in the United States, surveyed them. So we produced this report that was like, this is vacation rentals. This is how fast it's growing. 
This is in the United States. Um, I think at the time we said 5% of the population um, considered a vacation rental before a hotel. In Europe, that rate was 50%. So part of the thesis was the U.S. is going to get more comfortable with this and this market is going to 10x um, in the, the relatively near future. Anyways, we sent this, we published this white paper, we sent it out to all the property managers and it found its way onto every corporate um, development desk in the travel space. So within a week of releasing that report, we had inbound from Expedia, Hotwire, uh, Priceline, booking, which is booking.com, and as part of that, TripAdvisor. TripAdvisor was local, and part of what we were trying to do was create um, – uh, the platform we were focused on at this point was creating trust – and we wanted to start with guest reviews. And we had built a very specific guest review system mm-hmm. that was designed to work for vacation rentals. Um, TripAdvisor did not work for vacation rentals at the time. And so we actually unofficially declared ourselves the TripAdvisor of vacation rental industry. And we publicly would say that. And others would publicly recognize us as, as, as that. And so... All of that just generated an inbound where um, Steve Koffer asked to sit down with us and we began uh, a friendly exchange of how we saw the industry. So, so then what happened after that, right? So Stephen Koffer's reaching out, you know, founder and CEO of TripAdvisor. Like, what happens next? Um, it's a little intimidating. You know, we're like 26 years old. We, um, you know... Steve's a very serious, very smart, serious man. Yeah. And this is in the old TripAdvisor building, and he's got all, a bunch of people in there. Adam Endros was in there with a couple others. And so we, we explain how we see the industry and the nuances of it and why we don't believe that what – how hotels have gained a trusted reputation, how that won't work in this space the same, the same way. And they believe it. Well, they, they don't, I should say they believe it. They respect our perspective. And then Steve said, well, why don't you show me what you built? And I said, I'll do respect, but you guys asked us here. You guys could crush us at any time. Like, I'm not really prepared to show you exactly right. what we built. Competitive. And he got very, he got very uh, irritated and said, <laughs> I have a checkbook. Do you like checks? <laughs> and... Uh, I smiled and I said, I do like checks, but I'm not prepared. Can you give us 60 days so I can at least be prepared to take you through what we're building? We agreed to that. And literally 60 days later, we were back in the same office, same table, and we took them through basically our beta. And I explained why we chose certain decisions we had made. And from there, they came back and offered, um, you know, they basically said, listen, if you start getting, um, you know, this is how strategic deals work, where if we were to take a venture check, it would probably push them in the direction of doing building it themselves. If we were to partner with them, we could take a strategic check, partner with them, and de-risk a little bit. Um, and that's what was presented to us. is like, you say you're the TripAdvisor of Vacation Rentals. Well, you can't say that when we be... when. We TripAdvisor are the TripAdvisor <laughs> vacation rentals, right. exactly. And so we it was it was it was a uh, we we had to go home and figure out like do we want to lower the ceiling on the potential of of our personal, uh, you know, our financial potential of this business, mm-hmm. 
or um, or do we want to go all the way and just try and be independent? And it was it was a really difficult decision. Um, it seemed it seems harder now than it was then because at that time, uh, Homeway had just raised half a billion dollars. Wow. So our main our main competitor just announced a five hundred million dollar round. We had fifty k left in the bank. We could only make payroll for a couple more months. Oh my god. Um, Airbnb was still un, pretty much unknown, but it had raised a couple million. And there was others that you haven't even heard of. PicPacGo was launched by the founder of AvantGo. They had raised like five million. But you know, like there was money going around, and so we, we felt like giants were lurking. Mm-hmm. And um, but we were on to something big. So. Their offer, once we were able to negotiate it, it ended up feeling like the most attractive attractive option that we had. Um, they were able to capitalize the company. They resolved our demand problem by giving us access to all the TripAdvisor traffic. Um, we were also able to speed up our brand recognition by five years by simply associating with TripAdvisor. And you have to realize too, at that time, TripAdvisor was one of the, was the hottest brand in travel at the time. Yeah. It was a rising star. It hadn't, it was far from, you know, it's kind of a stage of of plateau right now, but at that time it was definitely the star child. And, uh, and so that was it. Um, Also one, uh, so I, I will say that the story, uh, the day before we verbally closed, Steve Coffer asked me over to his um, to his house to have breakfast on Sunday, and uh, Sunday or Saturday, I can't remember. And it was just him, him and I, and he has four kids, and one or two of them were like playing around, and we were just having uh, bagels. And suddenly he was like, "I've been having so much fun. Uh, this has been a great conversation. I've got to go pick up my kid at, uh, I believe, Hebrew school." And do you want to come along? I want to keep talking. And okay. I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. And so I, I'm a little, I'm, I'm probably a head taller than Steve. And so we go, and we go into his garage, and he walks to his car, and uh, I'm just following him. Just, I'm kind of overwhelmed by everything that's going on. And the next thing I know, I just slam my head oh. against, uh, I don't know, I, it, was, it was one of the support, support the beams. horizontal supports of the, I think they, the garage door opener because it was a low garage. It was a low right, garage, yeah. and so I get into his car and we keep talking. And all of a sudden, my eyes are going blurry. Oh no! I have blood dripping no, down my is- face. <laughs> I've split open my head, and there's literally just blood oh, all over. And so he actually has a band aid in the car, and so I have a band aid, and I'm I'm bald, and I have a band aid stuck <laughs> on my bald head. That's really and so. Anyways, when it was all said and done. Um, I went home, and the next day we got verbal confirmation that we had we were getting close to reaching an agreement. And so we so then we worked for four years. We 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 constructed this very unique um, uh, agreement with TripAdvisor. They owned the majority of us for four years. They then bought the minority stake at the end of that four years. That's when I left the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, my co-founders have since gone on to start new companies. Carl is the CTO of Bondlink that just did their Series A. Mm-hmm. Jeremy went back to the vacation vacation rental world and started Breezeway, mm-hmm. um, which sells logistical software to uh, property managers um, in the vacation rental uh, space. And uh, my CMO, Eric Corndall, started Renoviso. They just did their Series A. Yep. And so uh, I'm proud that we created – 
we as we were entrepreneurial in creating a business, but we create an entrepreneurial spirit inside of Flipkey where there have been several businesses already birthed from that. Um, and so I hope to, to continue seeing that um, occur because it's the, it's the many mafias that create ecosystems. So you hear a lot about the Indeca mafia, HubSpot mafia, yeah. but there are other mafias. Compete was a mafia. Yeah. Um, I, would, I hope that Flipkey one day can have enough companies birthed out of it where you would begin to to relay it all back and um and i take pride in that yeah um, i think more pride in creation than than really anything else uh, it's so important obviously the mafias go so far and there are so many unrecognized mafias of companies that did have that entrepreneurial spirit and hired people that had that mind share to go start their own companies yeah actually we do like a alumni slideshows of we call them spider webs that are just that people that have gone on to either found companies or are in executive leadership roles building companies. So, yep. Yeah, the mafias are important. So after Flipkey, at what point did you start getting into angel investing? Because that's kind of what was the segue to where you are now as an actual investor at Accomplice. So I ended up, uh, Highland invited me to be uh, an EIR, an entrepreneur in residence. And at the time we lived in Beacon Hill. So it was a, a short walk for me and they had an awesome office. And I really liked Craig Driscoll. He, uh, I was obsessed with, the business of people, like um, surrounding yourself with talent, to me was the easiest way to actually build sustainable things. And so I really wanted to better understand, like, how do you find, attract, organize, manage, and acquire talented people? And Craig Driscoll, this is what he did at Highland. So I ended up there. And in that, guys like Walt Doyle and other people started coming through the door and uh, people had these working on these projects. So Walt had Drizzly. He just put, you know, the Drizzly, he just put a personal check on it. And he was like, yeah, dude, they're putting a syndicate. Like, do you want to, do you want to invest in Drizzly? And I just kind of blindly did it because Walt was doing it. Right. And, um, but then I started working with the, with the Drizzly guys. Right. And in sitting in the Highland office and seeing how they were looking at deals and then getting deal flow myself because people thought I was an investor because I had an office there. I just began to see patterns and again, always coming back to like people, like who are the people involved with this? Who are the people running this? How good are they really? Uh, how good are the people they've attracted? And so the same thesis I ran Flipkey by, which was let's just go get the best people. I began applying that to what I was seeing come in the door. And so I ended up making various bets and they ended up all kind of, not all, but like they all kind of started tracking pretty well. And when you, um, I had time cause I wasn't really working. EIR isn't a real job. So I was able to really do a lot of advisory work for a lot of these companies and in actually helping them, they would tell other companies he actually helped. And it just kind of grew organically from there where I was getting introduced to good companies and amazing founders um, which ultimately led me to write more angel checks, get more into it. Um, and then I was able to connect with Accomplice on a couple of occasions. They had created Boss, which was really created to catalyze angel investing in Boston. And so I was like, listen, I would love to be part of Boss, but like more, I would rather just run it. Um, and Boss was founders kind of finding deal flow that boss would write checks. Correct. So the way that boss worked was saying, listen, we want to catalyze angel investing. Sometimes 
the angel, a new angel investor will look at an opportunity and think, I mean, what's my 20K check going to do or 10K check? Um, you know, like checks range from 10K to five, to 50 to 100. And, and so sometimes you're like, does this really help? But we wanted them to feel really empowered by saying like, if you truly like a company, you're going to put your own personal capital in plus provide some level of mentorship. We'll give you leverage. We'll put $250,000 behind you and even give you our carry on that. And so the idea there was to really allow people to feel like empowered to cre- help create a company. And so I have basically organized and cheerlead around that, uh, you know, the ethos of, of people who have been fortunate enough to win and create to empower the next generation. Like, pay it forward. And so you have been chosen because, like, the world has said that you are, you know, like, you've either succeeded or you're on your path to succeeding. So, like, let us help you give you a toolbox so that you can start bringing up, like, the next generation. So that was boss. And um, and so I, yeah, and so that, and at that point, I now had a formal job at a venture capital firm. I'm now working with a lot of entrepreneurs not just a lot of entrepreneurs that are now boss companies, but our actual members of boss are 50 of the most prominent CEOs and founders in Boston. And so what I was already doing was now beginning to hit scale because I just had more resources and a platform kind of, which is accomplice. Um, and so that was, that was my maturation process into getting more and more serious and, uh, in investing. And, uh, really refining my filter, refining how I think about how companies are created, how I think about founders, how I think about team builds. Um, you can't, it's, it's impossible to just walk in and know how to be a good investor. Totally impossible. Um, and so I do think that I have, um, uh, I have, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I've had the benefit of a fire hose for the last four years mm-hmm. between Highland, my own experiences, my own network, Highland, and now Accomplice. Like it, I've, I've been able to have multiple perspectives, one of the broadest networks in Boston, a good like one where like I have meaningful relationships with very special people. And so now, um, yeah, I now have have joined as a full-time partner because I think that the tool set is there now for for me to truly help build large, long-lasting companies. What's been the biggest surprise as an investor? Either things that you see entrepreneurs do that you're like, wow, they just never learn or things that you didn't know about venture that opened your eyes? Uh, I mean, the, the lessons from entrepreneurs go on and on. Uh, I, th- I think what it... There's a million lessons. If I were to boil it down to, let's just call it two, I would say that the uh, Fred Lalonde of, uh, of Hopper said at once that he has a disease. Um, he has a disease where he has a vision. He's undeterred from it. And often he's been given offers for his company on multiple occasions. He says no every time. Um uh, because he thinks he can actually dominate the entire space. 
and he and he and he speaks of it as a disease like he can't get this out of his head and what i've noticed about the best on the, the guys that the guys and women that build the biggest things is they have a disease right they there's a worm in their head that they can't get out mm-hmm. and they're at a speed that's faster than others and they're comfortable with it and they say things that make you uncomfortable because it sounds crazy um O'Sheen Harahan at Handy once Handy was teeny at the time I said hey listen my a good friend of mine is now the CPO at uh, Service Magic which became Home Advisor I was like I, I have a call with their um, head of corp dev like do you want me to kick off you want, you want me to put you guys in a room together to see if there's something there and he was like to see if I would buy them, I was like, "Well, no." <laughs> to see if to see if you might be interested in, like, you know, as, as an option for you, because like, if things don't work out, yeah, get a little faster on your end. He was like, "No, I if those guys, though, I will be in touch with those guys in two years, and they'll I'll be buying them." Right. And so I got off, and I was like, "That is just so arrogant," and I cannot like the kid is 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 out of his mind. But then watching O'Sheen over the next few years, I was like, yeah, it was a little crazy. And I don't think, you know, will that actually happen? Like, remains to be seen. But I get it. Like, he actually believed that. Right. And he made decisions. And he's he's telling investors, he's telling his employees, like, this is what we're trying to do. What this lead generation business they're playing is dead. Like, we are going to create this transactional engine and we are going to operate cleaning and handyman service in the United States. And so... That is, you know, for any entrepreneurs listening to like, like that's what you have to ask yourself when you're built, when you want to take venture money or build a venture scale business is like, do you think you, does your vision, does what you want to build, do you have a disease around it? Like that, that you just, you're just undeterred. So that's one. It's like finding the founders with a disease. Um, the second would be, and is, is the art of the politics of venture capital. There's not that many actual people. Some firms have been around forever. Some are new. There's weird interpersonal relationships across all of them. And so like there, there's this, there's this weird, uh, unique dance that you need to learn how to do properly mm-hmm. to, uh, because you need partner, you need capital partners. You need to create brand. You need people to know that your check means something. Your conviction is worth more than someone else's conviction. And to do that is uh, – it's it's a weird blend of art and politics. And that is – you couldn't – if you were to write a book about it, it would sound silly. You would literally need to create an ongoing series like Silicon Valley mm-hmm. to begin conveying some of the nuances of, of, of what – um, of what I see and experience sometimes. So is it a bad thing? Not necessarily. It's just something that um, you don't you don't realize until you're in the belly of the beast. Yeah. Now as a product-minded investor that obviously adds a lot of value uh, to entrepreneurs, one of the other strengths that I've realized just by knowing you for as long as I have is the team building aspect, you know, the recruiting. So we see you hustling, trying to connect great people to companies. So talk about that piece of, you know, how do you advise founders on building their teams, recruiting, and how do you connect the dots there? Um, first and foremost is that you have to 
establish it as a priority. Um, the I tell every CEO that I work with, I say that they their job, their first priority is raising capital. To always just know where the next dollar is coming from. The second is building a team, operating, being creative. Your actual product is third. It's literally third on the list. And um, and so one, making sure that they're actually focused on it, and then two, helping um, the the bar for how people think about talent is different. And so just getting them to understand the difference between an average hire and an amazing hire is the next point where I will early on offer to do last interviews with like the two finalists and then give my opinion on either say you can't hire either of these people or that there's a clear difference of these two. Um, And so I think that's where it is. It's just like, getting them to buy into it and then working with them to hone their own filter system. And then they kind of got to be on their own at that point. Um, and they've got to make their own calls. The, the other thing that I can, that I tend to try and do, and this is early on, you can't keep doing this is like for key, key hires, I will take time and I'll dig deep. So I will go out to the network. I've even built applications that help do this to connect really influential, knowledgeable people with certain skill sets to help others find people like them. And uh, I'll lean in because often if you can just set the bar high early, the bar tends to stay high. Mm-hmm. Um, if the bar is set low early, it tends to stay low. And I, I, I will refrain from naming names, but I have companies like – actually, I'll name on the good side, like Love Pop, where Wambi and John have created a high bar from the beginning. And they keep raising the bar. And I won't go through their current team, but if you were to look at their current org chart, you will be shocked at the quality and seniority of the people that are building a massive, what appears to be greeting card company. It's actually bigger. It's not a greeting card company, but that's for another day. Um, And then I've had some other companies that have struggled that actually had really well-functioning businesses, but had kept adding people, added them because they were cheap added them because they were available um, and never, never dug into truly creating center nodes of like in amazing, incredible people. And those, those, those businesses ultimately, you know, deprecated. Yeah. Um, and so it's the correlation is just kind of in your face around what happens when you surround an opportunity with talent versus not. Well, that's powerful value to instill into your, you know, the founders that you're working with. You know, just my background as a recruiter, you know, you'd see different types of founders and ones that truly valued and want to set the bar high. And then others that were just like, like drowning in work and just needed someone to pass work off of. And you just would sometimes be horrified. Like, like, do you know how important this hire is, right? And just how strategic and just how they went through the process or selection. And remember too, like... If I go back to the first two jobs of the CEO, raising money, attracting people, mm-hmm. um, attracting talent, like the functions are the same. Right. You have to convince – you have a wildly unprofitable business mm-hmm. that has very few employees with giants hovering over you. And you have to convince someone to write millions of dollars to climb that mountain. So that seems like a bet, like an impossible sell. 
Well, at the same time, you're a young company. You can't compete with the Google, Facebook, HubSpot-like offers in the market from a salary perspective. You have to convince people who are extremely valuable, who are being asked to work at a number of different places, to come work for you for below market wages because this stock because the stock option might someday change their life, and you have to convince them that that is a likely scenario. And so I find that it's the founders, entrepreneurs that are able to tell stories and make people believe like that, that are able to simply like, they are forces of nature. They are able to make things happen. They magnetize both people and resources around them. And those are the functions that build business. Strategic execution, tactical like rollouts, like all that stuff like that, that just flows out of out of good teams, um, and we can talk about what are good strategies, this and that. But like, uh, it has to start with people. Yeah, let's talk about Boston, uh, and we can talk broad. But I also like to bring it a little bit more specific around. You know, you uh, founded a successful consumer company. Boston's always had this preconceived notion that you can't build consumer companies here in Boston. Yet, you know, I argue the other point. Um, but what's the landscape of Boston currently as you're you know, looking at deal flow and consumer companies or just the so general that market? Consumer, that consumer thing actually makes me a little irritated. Yeah, um, me too. <laughs> it's like, so you go around and you – I'm irritated on two ways. One, there's plenty of consumer companies here, whether it's like TripAdvisor, CarGurus, Wayfair, LovePop. PillPack, um, DraftKings. Yeah, DraftKings, and I mean, we can we can go on and on. Yeah. So, like, I mean, bullshit. There's there's consumer companies here. Uh, what I'm actually disappointed in, and where Boston um, really needs to step up, is that we talked about mafias earlier. Mm-hmm. Our consumer companies here do not effectively create mafias. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, TripAdvisor. Mm-hmm. How many startups have come out of Trip TripAdvisor alumni? Someone's going to say, well, car gurus, that doesn't count. Like Langley was a co-founder of TripAdvisor. So that doesn't count. I'm talking about kicking out alumni, like new entrepreneurs. So TripAdvisor, I'm unaware of any. Um, so car gurus, it's now public. You got pretty soon a lot of uh, Langley's guys will be liquid. Well, I hope we see some spinouts there. Like we, like that is how you create these viral, eco, not viral, but like, viral expansion ecosystems is that these winners have to kick out five other winners. And now HubSpot has done a great job of that on the B2B side. And DECA has done a great job. Compete, again, I come back. Now, granted, obviously I'm a little biased, but like Compete kicked off a bunch of entrepreneurs that have created like a, nearly a dozen successful businesses. Right. Um, and so on the consumer end, you just haven't seen that. And so, like DraftKings, it's too, there's no liquidation there. But like, there's no liquidity event, not liquidation. Um, there's no liquidity event yet. But like, DraftKings needs to create some new companies. Mm-hmm. And so, Wayfair as well. And so, Wayfair, how many new companies have been created by Wayfair alumni? Any? I don't think so. So, um, these companies are super important. Steve Steve Coffer is one of. Uh, was one of my mentors. I look up to him so much. So this is not an indictment of any of these companies or CEOs. Nurishaw is, in my opinion, one of the best Amazing. CEOs in America. Yeah. But like something's happening. Like I don't know what it is, but our winners in the consumer space are not 
are not creating new companies. And that, like, that has to be rectified. So that's problem one. I agree that needs to be more mafias. The other thing that baffles me as we're sitting here in Cambridge is Google has how many employees all working on different nuances of Google products. It's not like they're Facebook's mainly like the infrastructure, networking, scale side of their business. Like no one leaves Google and Cambridge either to go off and build and raise money and start this crazy idea. Um, it is. I mean, have you looked at the salaries lately? But so is that it's, the problem? Is it the uh, you know when they look at their W two between their salary, bonus, RSUs? It's like, well, I'm fat and happy here. Why would I go take a risk? Uh, honestly, yeah, it's my best guess. Every yeah. time I run into someone from Google. They tend to be very smart people right. and they tend to tell me I make a ton of money. I don't work very hard. <laughs> so it's hard. You need the only people that break out of that are those with the disease. Mm -hmm. Those with the disease rarely go work for Google. In fact, they look at Google as giving up. Um, and so I think that's why it's like you just – those with the disease aren't attracted to ever working there. And then one of those that are in there – they're probably never inspired. They never catch the disease because they're fat and happy. Yeah. Um, that's my, that's a hypothesis. Right. I have I have no idea, but yeah. um, I have not. You bring up a good point. I've seen one person from Google start a business in the last year here in Cambridge, and he was like an account rep. Um, like the one company, um, Mabel, right? That was Stack Driver, uh, Dan Belcher and Izzy Aziri that they were acquired in like 21 months, uh, by Google for their, you know, cloud services. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I applaud them because they have the disease, right? It's like now they're off to build their next company and they're disrupting a market that no one's challenging testing QA, right? Yeah. And they're bringing machine learning to it. They just raised a boatload of money and they're going to build hopefully a pillar company here in Boston. So it's that type of, um, like bring it back to what you said, a disease, right? They want to build companies, not just hang out like on Silicon Valley where there's the roof deck of all the founders yeah, that are just yeah. like hanging out. Yeah. I mean, it's the disease is twofold. You want to build and you don't want to sell. Yeah. Like uh, JJ Lair is i mean he's a he's a remarkable entrepreneur that no one ever that does not get spoken about enough probably because he doesn't like talking to people but <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> but, amazing but his track record is, is is insane is totally insane but when he recruited his first employees and i know this because one of his first his actual very first employee is a, is a buddy of mine um he was very clear he's like you're gonna have stock options but they're not worth anything because i'm never selling this company so don't value value them at zero because they'll, you'll never be able to exchange them for anything unless and, we go public. Un, and that even then, he like it, I, I I don't think I, I, again I wasn't there, but I think his point was this will never go public. Like I will always just run this company, and this is my passion. So like your these options are kind of fake to mm -hmm. to a degree, mm -hmm. and so that is like that's the mindset of someone who's like. I'm not building something to sell it. Right. I'm not building something to share it with the public. Like I'm building it because like I, I want to build the best thing in this space ever and make it always be the best. 
And so that's like you're basically trying to find that person, that mentality, and a bunch of other tools that they have in their kit. Um, and then every once in a while, it all comes together. Yep. So true. And it's uh, and it's a rare, it's a rare breed. But anyways, it is fun because I get to meet remarkable people, even folks that we are unable to. Um, Good people that I'm unable to fund, I still try and help in, in small ways, whether it's an introduction or some insight into some case study that I think applies to them that they need to be aware of. Um, for those that probably are out of their element, um, uh, I encourage them to keep going down the path because it will probably be a journey that they will forever uh, appreciate and they'll learn from. But I'll also be pretty candid that I think it's going to be a hard road and they need to be emotionally and financially prepared for that and um and so that's it um cool well, yeah on that note tj thanks so much <laughs> for your time honestly we got so much great information so thank you for taking the time to share your words of wisdom here well that's our show i hope you found it useful and entertaining if you did please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.